0: This is The Causes of Things, and I'm your host, Michael O'Fallon. I ask that you be patient with me as I'm suffering through a little bit of laryngitis today that will be affecting our sound quality. But perhaps you have noticed that we are living in a time where what you knew to be absolutely true, to be fact-based, that was called a conspiracy theory or a wild-eyed attempt at hate just a year ago is now being accepted as a widely accepted norm. For instance, early in the spring of 2020, Sovereign Nations had published several articles regarding the source of the Wuhan virus, which were immediately deleted by Facebook and Twitter. Since that time, Sovereign Nations has been severely shadow banned and then curbed by Facebook for following the direct evidence. In the summer of 2020, I had interviewed Dr. Lee Meng Yen regarding the origins of COVID-19, which is where Dr. Yen identified the virus as definitely having laboratory origins. This video would have been instantly banned from YouTube, would have resulted in a Facebook deletion and suspension, and would have resulted in the possible deletion Of our Twitter account. In fact, we were told that if we posted the interview with Dr. Yan on any other video forum, that the ban could still be extended to our current social media accounts. There was a narrative that had to be communicated, and only those who were the fact checkers and the magisterium of mainstream media could be trusted for truth. Any suggestion that COVID 19 might have originated from a Chinese lab, or worse yet, that the release of the virus was well timed and strategic, would literally end with your social media decapitation. The acceptable answer was that the virus just happened ex nihilo. You weren't allowed to create a documentary on the subject like our friends at the Epic Times did last year. The social media giants punished Epic Times for their research. The only acceptable answer, of course, was that it originated from a bat, a pangolin, or some other non-identifiable nonsense. But from January of 2020 to May of 2021, you were forbidden punishable by digital execution, from suggesting anything outside of the it-just-happened official narrative from the mainstream media. And of course, as predicted on The Causes of Things last year, the narrative transitioned into the climate emergency crisis once the Biden regime took office in occupied Washington, D.C. And of course, from a geopolitical standpoint, the nation of origin of the COVID-19 virus is a hegemonic nation whose goal is world domination. Not just financial domination, but informational, digital, and cultural. But now, those that attacked, belittled, and attempted to accuse those of us that pointed to man-made origins of COVID-19, of creating conspiracy theories, now, all of a sudden, want to push those of us that raised these issues in 2020 and claim the mantle of trusted for truth on the origin of the virus coming from a Wuhan lab. Now they want to claim that they were careful in not jumping to conclusions, but that they are the ones who can now be trusted, even though we were the ones that got it right. At the same time, those seemingly conservative media types who pushed away from stating that the virus had Chinese lab origins have all of a sudden found their voice. And all of those that had raised the obvious proof of the origins of the virus will be dismissed, silenced, and ignored so now with a new administration which will be friendly with china who just attacked our entire infrastructure and way of life the administration will seek with china a compromise a compromise that is a third way the compromise that is the end of synthesis at the end of the kantian hegelian thesis antithesis synthesis formulation. A formulation that creates a long, gradualistic process of incremental compromises that eventually lead to paradigm-shifting change. A compromise that will be pursued while our own U.S. military is being told that the greatest threat to the United States is not the racist, hegemonic, colonizing nation of China, but instead the greatest threat, of course, is conservative Americans. Well, It must be asked, where else have we seen similar patterns? Where else have we seen this diabolic, dialectical strategy played in the exact same way? Well, firstly, and I think most obviously, in the political systems of both the United States and the UK, where supposedly conservative politicians such as Nixon, Ford, Rockefeller, in its first iteration, that then transitioned to the Bush, McCain, Cheney, Paul Ryan, Romney, Sass, McConnell blend of dialectical politics, where the Republicans play the thesis to the Democrats' antithesis in order to achieve progressive leaning, America disintegrating synthesis. It is what they call, quote, how things are done in Washington, D.C., end quote. And it allows Republicans to appear to be conservative, say conservative things, but at the same time compromise time after time for the sake of what they believe is inevitable supranationalism. The phrase, quote, there is nothing that can stop what is coming, or, quote, there is nothing you can do to stop this change from happening, end quote are repeated over and over again in the halls of diners and bars and think tanks of Washington, D.C. The same thing is happening in the U.K., where both Tory and Labour leaders play the same dialectical methods to point where the Tory Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, appears to be more hell-bent on achieving Klaus Schwab's dream of building back better than the Labour Party elites. So you have Conservatives who are not conservative. They say conservative things, sometimes make profoundly conservative statements, statements that you would agree with, but then in their actions and in their hiring and personnel decisions are beyond progressive. And we let them get away with it. Election after election, we vote in the thesis vote to the antithesis. But in the end, we always somehow end up with the synthesis, the compromise. It is the way things are done in Washington, D.C. It is what I like to call the dialectical river. And the process and hierarchies are built to ensure that this dialectical river is protected. You are told to be a reasonable man. A man that, in fact, will allow the dialectical river to continue to flow. And the dialectical process continues, even with your more conservative opinion added in, as long as you don't call out names. As long as you don't call out the names of those that you know for certain are part of creating Hegel's alchemy. Hegel, of course, was metaphysical in his construct, hermetic in fact, and Hegel's formulation was to create alchemy. Alchemy is the water of the dialectical river. And if you remember from our past podcast, what alchemy actually is, alchemy is the exact opposite of the pursuit of objective truth, the opposite of the scientific method, if you will. And where the scientific method seeks to understand things as they are, alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. And to put it another way, the primary objective of science and the scientific method is finding objective truth where the primary goal of alchemy is operational success. Operational success of whatever those in control of the dialectical river want it to be. Power, control, paradigm-shifting change, or even personal legacy. And even those that object to the eventual bastardized synthesis, even those that point out its flaws, will be allowed to voice their concerns as long as they continue to operate within the guidelines of the dialectical river. That's how the dialectical river flows. It is the operational preparation of the environment, the preparation or creation of a societal antithesis for a big paradigm-shifting event. A grand synthesis. And you are in the middle of that grand civilizational synthesis. A great reset, if you will. And it isn't just in national politics. It has been happening throughout religion for. Decades. And I don't just mean the Christian religion. Every religion. A gradualistic erosion of what was considered absolute, firm, foundational, into a compromised synthesis. And this didn't just happen in the last year. This has been at work for decades. In many ways, we are at the pointed end of a 100-year-long spear, an attempt to change everything. In evangelical Christianity, with the infusion of critical race theory, intersectionality, standpoint epistemology, and radical subjectivism, with an attempt to change the central premise of the gospel itself from not living, embracing, or being imputed with the truth, but instead creating a grievance-centered, bitterness-driven, subjective, hermetic metaphysic of living by my truth, to introduce an ideological virus into the wide-separated power base that makes up wider evangelical Christianity. You see, within evangelical Christianity, you had myriads of separate hierarchies, Baptist, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Reformed, and Dispensational. To both disrupt and unify this disparate and varied power base, you had to create a coalition. A coalition that would pursue to introduce the ideological virus of critical race theory, intersectionality, at the exact same time that the same virus the same ideological virus was being introduced into education, research, corporate boards, legal studies, geography, healthcare, major league sports, arts and entertainment, in other faiths, in 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 Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, and Roman Catholicism, and even in the atheist community, all at the same time. So, first, a brief introduction of how we arrived where we are today in the religious community, and in particular, Evangelical Christianity and what led to this current crisis, because it is the same dialectical river whose flow we have been told to be a part of, to be reasonable, if our opinions and we ourselves are to be honored. That's part of the problem. Firstly, before I received the imputed righteousness of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I was a concerned and befuddled Roman Catholic teen, I grew up in a Roman Catholic household with my mother working as a minister of music and my stepfather being a former Jesuit brother. My uncle was a diocesan priest within the U.S. military. My brother received Christ and left the Roman Catholic faith as a teen. This led to many spirited discussions at the dinner table, as you can imagine. And one of the apologetic approaches that Roman Catholics would use with Protestants in those days was to introduce higher criticism into the discussion, deconstructing the very nature of an objective standard. As a teen with a lot of questions that was not receiving any consistent answers, I met a priest in the town of the university that I was attending. This concerned priest stated that he believed the primary reason for the direction of the church was the dialectic, being used from the beginning of the 20th century to Vatican II. He has well shared my concerns and would later leave the priesthood to become an evangelical Anglican. Well, this priest suggested several authors that I began to read, in particular, Father Malachi Martin. And while I rejected his appeals to Fatima and a lot of other things that I completely disagree with, there was a tremendous amount of valuable information contained within his writings. Let's just say that Father Martin was quite prescient in his understanding of what would be coming soon in the future for the Roman Catholic Church. And this was back in the 80s and 90s. Father Martin would consistently point to an unlikely international alliance of top-level financial, political, and religious interests that would come together in the future to make the way clear at last to its ultimate goal, the establishment of a single global society utopia. Well, needless to say, I tucked much of this away as I pursued other interests as a young man, which gradually led me away from the Roman Catholic Church One of the major events that was so blatantly obvious was the greatest dialectical play in the history of modern faith, ECT, or Evangelicals and Catholics Together, the ultimate synthesis. Maybe you haven't looked at it from that perspective before. And as usual, the Catholics weren't giving an inch, but it was the Evangelicals and Protestants that were asked to give away the fundamental element of faith alone. I decided to attend a midweek Southern Baptist Bible study around this time, really disenchanted by what the Roman Catholic Church was offering because I could see that there was much confusion and quite a bit of contradiction. And that is where I heard the gospel presented in a clear and unmistakable way. I repented of my sins, embraced the gospel, and left the Roman Catholic faith. I met my wife, Sa Fong Tang, who was majorly into apologetics and evangelism. She sharpened me in my early days and helped me to propel into what I am today. We married and dedicated ourselves to promoting truth. At the same time, I would be in an hour-long car ride to and from work every day, back in those early years, and I would hear Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul. That shaped me, sharpened me. I also found a precise, non-ad hominem accurate debater of Roman Catholics, not someone who was wacky and way off on Dave Hunt types of theories which I could obviously poke holes in all day, and that man was Dr. James White. These two men would fashion and sharpen my approach to issues with faith in the coming years. I quickly found that even though my church was concerned with preaching the gospel, they weren't much concerned about apologetics. When I had suggested to my pastor that we have an apologetics conference focused on justification, he responded, quote, that's great, O'Fallon, if you want to pay for it, end quote. So, much like my stubborn self, I paid for it. I decided to self-fund an apologetics debate and conference at my Southern Baptist church. I invited James White, Mike Gendron, and R.C. Sproul. I promoted a cruise and would use the profits of the cruise to pay for the event. I created the debate between Robertson-Genis and James White for our conference. This would be the pattern that I would begin to use for years to come, but I saw something else that greatly concerned me. Now that I was a Protestant Christian and embraced the gospel, embraced the solas, completely, but there were supposedly conservative theologians in Reformed and Baptist circles who would wink and nod at sola scriptura, but would, in effect, Dismissed the idea of authoritative inerrancy. Many of these supposedly conservative theologians were dotting the landscape of evangelical seminaries. Now, in the early and mid 90s, Dr. Albert Muller had been given the rather lofty position as being the man responsible for clearing out all of the liberals out of Southern Baptist seminaries. But at Dr. Muller's seminary, he had employed as his professor of New Testament interpretation a man who, in his latest book, Christ Our Righteousness, was explicitly teaching a crypto-Lutheran understanding of justification that in many ways questioned individual direct imputation. So I attempted to engage Dr. Seyfried on these issues in his book, and he dismissed me with the back of his hand, literally. So I forwarded the email to James White, and we discussed how problematic Seyfried's teaching of imputation was in a Baptist context. Two months later, after serious theological engagement, with Dr. White, Dr. Seifried was dismissed from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, it should not have taken me, some guy who was at the time a minister of music at an evangelical church and a man who was running apologetics conferences and debates, to question Dr. Seifried. Well, for years and years, when I developed Sovereign, we used our profits from our new conference and cruise business to actually sponsor debates and conferences throughout the nation as our business grew, our client base grew. We did what we did quite well. In fact, better than anyone. We took on clients, all of them corporate, political, educational, a varied client base. And with our profits, which no one could tell us what to do with, we increased giving to the ministries that we supported and continued to grow in our conferences and debates. We began to grow in stature in the political community as a result of our being involved in helping conservative political engagement. And that is where I met, many years ago, Ambassador Alan Keyes, who would as well point to gradualistic determinism, the dialectic, as the methodology that was being used to deconstruct the Republican Party. Alan and I became fast friends, and his wisdom and knowledge has helped me to shape my understanding of what is happening politically in our nation. And during this time, from 2008 to 2012, I grew in stature in the hospitality industry as well. I began to hear things similarly in all circles that I was involved with, corporate, political, and religious. Number one, there is a change coming that you won't be able to stop. We need to focus more on social justice. We need to gravitate more towards the middle. We need to move away from a hard-line objective truth to a truth that understands individual experience lastly, intersectionality is a framework to solve our injustices in society. This is starting in 2009, but I'm hearing it everywhere. Now, once again, understand, I was hearing this in the hospitality industry, in conservative conservative political circles, and in Christian circles, and from our Chinese clients in regards to what needs to happen within the United States. I also understood that the lever for this massive change was to be facilitated through what is known as, quote, "public health. For all of these vastly different affinities to be saying the same things at the same time, well, there was something going on. And I began speaking plainly to political leaders and corporate leaders around me. I was dismissed. I also began talking to many of the Christian theologians and leaders around me about the problem. I tried to point out that several organizations, coalitions of the Christian faith, were employing the dialectic. Sadly, probably because of some degree of cognitive dissonance that can be understood, or because you never want to think the worst of anyone, most of my concerns were ignored. So it appeared that most of my good friends in ministry would pass on my concerns. Most said that they would keep their eyes open, but nearly all said that they just didn't believe that an entire movement towards social justice was about to happen in conservative and reformed evangelicalism, even though I was pointing them to the evidence. Well, at the time, I didn't have a platform. What I did, what Sovereign does, is we would create platforms for others. That's not something I had done for myself. And I didn't want to be in competition with people that were my clients either. So I started to post up concerns in the Reform Pub and other sites, Facebook groups, closed Facebook groups, as well as bring up my concerns in board meetings, etc. For the most part, my concerns were dismissed. Thankfully, there were others beginning to see the contradictions. One of those would be my client at WorldNetDaily, Joseph Farah, with whom I began discussions with in in 2016 and 2017 to create another site that would be Sovereign Nations. Unfortunately, WorldNetDaily had severe issues, and Sovereign Nations had to be built on its own. That took us quite a while. But during that time, especially when I knew that sovereign nations wouldn't be able to launch. There were people that saw the doublespeak. They could see the lurch to the progressive left. And none of these men knew me, and I didn't know them at the time. These men didn't have the advantage that I had of sitting in meetings where the strategies to introduce radical subjectivism into America, into Christianity, into everything— They didn't have that advantage. But they had discernment and they had boldness. And much like those that had, let's say in 2020, spoken about the origins of the COVID-19 in the labs in China, these men were dismissed. These men were called conspiracy theorists. They were called divisive they were derided for not being winsome. And yet some of these men were the ones that pointed out the obvious contradictions of leaders like Russell Moore, Al Mohler, Tim Keller, and others throughout the early years when no one else would touch the subject. J.D. Hall in Pulpit and Pen led with articles in 2013 and 2014 questioning the motives and direction of Russell Moore, They led with the major questioning of Dr. Mueller and Tim Keller when no one else would lift a finger. They led with the questions about the Gospel Coalition attempting to move the conservative reform movement to the left, and no one else would touch the subject. And in a moment that may have signaled the beginning of some streams of theonomy lurching to the far-progressive social justice movement, J.D. Hall and Joel McDermott debated which ended with J.D. Hall delivering a face-splattering end of Joel McDermott's period of being even remotely orthodox. Dr. McDermott then went full Kyle J. Howard social justice quickly thereafter. Brandon House was as well pointing out the contradictions and properly showing how this was all leading to a third way. And you might ask yourself, why these men could see this so clearly when others could not? Why could these men see this when other great theologians were somehow missing this all happening during this time? Well, a few things, although there is quite a bit more that could be said. Both men were and are still very involved both in local and national politics. They see these sorts of plays from politicians, as we were saying before, all the time, as I have as well. They both understand that men can say one thing and do completely the other. Also, both men are out of the camp and are fully involved in polemics, although from different theological perspectives. Another name to mention that we should not leave out would be Tom Littleton, whose work as well was acknowledged by both Pulpit and Pen and Worldview Weekend. Tom Littleton properly tied the influence of Richard Florida with Dr. Al Mohler, I met Richard Florida many years ago, and he probably doesn't remember it. For those of you who didn't know, Richard Florida is a man responsible for popularizing what we know today as gentrification. He was also the author of The Great Reset, back from 2010. And there you have it. Now, again, these men came to many of their concerns without any encouragement from me at all and they were out in front about their concerns. They were ahead of everyone else on the subject. In 2018, I as well spoke about these issues in the political realm to the soon-to-be governor, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump Jr., congressional representatives, Defense Department officials, State Department heads, and senior White House counsel. Now, many of these men good men and are fighting the fight now but once again i was dismissed or at least my concerns were dismissed at some point knowing that there was going to be a time of great reckoning soon i began to spill a lot of the information that i had to others and yes others began coming to me from seminaries churches corporate boards political groups to tell me about their concerns and to provide information Now, please understand, I never intended to have Sovereign Nations act as the defensive front of Reformed Evangelical Christianity. Sovereign Nations was built to be an open platform for all to discuss this cancerous ideology and the supranationalist liberty-destroying technocracy-building edifice that it is, dialectically, moving our world and our nations towards a digital autocracy. That is why I had such a diverse group of speakers at our first conference, and continue in this vein. Sovereign Nations was not meant to be a ministry, but I am a Christian. And if there was not going to be a robust discussion of the ideas behind the problems that were happening around us, I needed to provide that discussion quickly. And as the men, whom you can refer to them as the discernment bloggers, and I began to speak, we began to fully understand that this was a political movement disguised as a theological movement. And of course, just like all of us that were signaling that the COVID-19 virus was man-created and had its genesis in the laboratory, we were all called conspiracy theorists. So, I worked with everyone. I spoke with everyone. I tried to warn everyone everywhere of what was coming. And to their credit, J.D. Hall, Tom Littleton, A.D. Robles, Cody Leibold, Jacob Brunton, Judd Saul, and others listened. We didn't always get along. We didn't always agree, but we seemed to work together well to try to beat this problem. And while so many of the larger names were just repeating the phrases of Marxism and not attempting to understand Derridian deconstruction, Foucauldian power relationships, Marcus's repressive tolerance, or Hegelian dialectics, the young men, the discernment blotters, listened. And they got it right, and they did their own homework. They wanted to be correct. They knew that we didn't have a chance to get this wrong. We had to get it right. So, even with tremendous differences between all of us, they understood that we had to fight this ideological monstrosity. And this is going back many years. They as well led the way in 2018 before the statement on social justice and the gospel. Continuing after the statement on social justice in the gospel, John Harris started to step up in 2019. Now, during this time, there were squabbles and disagreements of all sorts happening in the inside, but it needs to be understood that the information that was provided to this group of frenemy band of brothers, if you will, was also provided to other big established names in Reformed Christianity who were supposed to be on our side, and they did literally nothing with that information. They sat on it. But when this group of Harris, Leibold, Brunton, Robles, Hall, Jones, Saul revealed the published and available skinny on Matt Hall, who for some reason is still in place at SBTS, I can't understand why, Jarvis Williams and Russell Moore, the barrage of just information was relentless. And there was no doxing or hacking going on. There was nothing unfair. There was nothing ad hominem, even. What these men said and wrote was in plain view for all to see for years. And yet, during that time of maybe a five, six-year period, no one else took notice. And the thing was, it was all true. And here's the real question that everybody needs to ask. Would we be where we are today if that group of men did not relentlessly pursue the issues around CRT and progressivism in Christianity? The answer is no. And part of the problem is that we had accepted for years that our institutions would protect us. But the institutions were actually part of the problem. The institutions were guarding the problem. The dialectical river. So there was a massive minefield that needed to be crossed. It was laying before us almost like in World War I, and you knew you had to get to the other side. And let's face it, folks, even with all of our differences, even with our disagreements, J.D. Hall, Tom Littleton, Brennan House, Cody Leiboldt, Jacob Brunton, Andy Robles, Bill Roach, John Harris, and several other discernment bloggers crossed that active and armed minefield. All of us losing limbs along the way. Some brothers facing church discipline and expulsion for their stands along the way. Losing millions of dollars of business along the way. Having our reputations destroyed along the way. And now, others. Now that the minefield has been cleared and has been made safe, Others are on top of their white horses in full monarchial regalia, striding across the field to declare themselves courageous for crossing the minefield, now that it is profitable. Just like the mainstream media that is now saying, after calling us all conspiracy theorists in 2020, that COVID-19 is most likely created in a lab. And I know we should rejoice even when it includes false bravado, that other men are fighting for the truth. And yes, I will rejoice. But this new group of champions has an issue. They will not name the names of those responsible for this entire disaster. Why? Because they are still in the dialectical river. And they will be given opportunities to speak. They will be given honor they will be given even a few positions in their denomination, if they are reasonable men. Because if you play along, you can just play in the dialectical river. And in the end, the progressive operational success will happen, because they are not willing to name the names or call out the process. Worst of all, once the discussion of social justice and critical race theory is popularized, When it will come up every convention, well, let's think back to our political discussion that we were having before. Remember we were saying, in in Republican circles, when you need to rally the troops, when you need to fundraise, you go to the hot button issue. Abortion. And Republicans are as responsible for ensuring that abortion stays around as the Democrats. Because without it, they will not have their rallying cry. My fear is that CRT will become evangelicals abortion, something that they want to keep safe and legal, but never actually defeat it. Allow it to hang around. Use it to sell books. Try to have a reasonable discussion around the unreasonable and unthinkable. Because remember... Critical race theory is not the end goal. It never was. Intersectionality is the goal. And you know, nothing would make me happier than to see Christians involved in polemics that could defeat this monstrous ideology within our ranks. I wish that I could just transition to defeating radical subjectivity in every area that has been affected, which is really in everything. And what I really hope for is a bridge to be built between the men that sacrifice their reputations for the sake of the church and then with those that are riding on the road paved by men whom they normally avoid. We, who all oppose this cantress ideology, need to find a way to talk to one another. Somehow, through the Holy Spirit, we must find that bond because there's only a few of us. And in this phase, we need to understand that where we are now is not unlike the early days of the church in the second century or like the early days of the Reformation. The big institutional church needs reforming from the outside in. And what we must defeat, what we must drain, is the dialectical river. The dialectical river is the third way. And it is the third way that you must be aware of, and the new leaders of the third way as well. The third way will seem like a reasonable compromise, but it was always the intended target. They just used the agents of chaos to bring you to the point of embracing their new utopia. Sadly, it may be necessary to dismantle the current system because it is so dialectically corrupt. And then we have to build it back again properly. So what can you do? Well, you can rise to the occasion and help all of us to end this nonsense right now. Start speaking the truth and begin to peacefully resist against the continuation of this nonsense. For sovereign nations, it's our mission to preserve the cognitive liberty of men and women in our world, preserve national liberty and national unity. For Christians, they must see their leadership for what they are. Trans-Christians. Transforming historic Christianity into some rough beast that is crouching towards who knows where to be born also as we step forward remember those that walked the minefield and lost their limbs in the early days we must win I'm Michael O'Fallon And this has been The Causes of Things.